Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to be joined by Asal Rad. She is the um, research director at the National Iranian American Council. Um, and we're going to talk about the protest movement that has been shaking the foundations of the Iranian government for the past six weeks now, close to six weeks. Um, we're going to try to get into that with a bit of depth. I'm going to do a, a double segment with uh, Asal. But first, I want to touch on a story in the news this week just uh, that you may have missed, didn't get a ton of attention. Um, two towns in New Mexico have moved to outlaw abortion in the wake of the Trump Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade. Um, now, the state of New Mexico is a blue state. and Abortion remains legal there. But Reuters reports, and I quote, the towns of Clovis and Hobbs do not even have abortion clinics, but are strategic because they are near the border with Texas to the east. Texas was one of the first states to impose a near total ban on abortion and providers could face up to life in prison there. So the basic story here is that um, forced birthers have won their battles in all of these red states like Texas. And now they are using um, like little right wing pockets in blue states, little bastions of conservatism like Hobbes and Clovis to um, to create new battle lines in blue states. Um, and this strategy appears to be working to a degree. Plans to open a clinic in uh, either Clovis or Hobbs or somewhere closer to the Texas border. And that whole region is conservative, more conservative than the state. They're pushing this, this uh, effort in other towns as well, or considering it. Um, plans to open a, a clinic closer to Texas have been shelved in response to this push to, uh, to ban the procedure locally meaning that the closest clinic to the Texas border will remain at least for the foreseeable future, Albuquerque and women coming from Texas will have to drive four more hours to get there. And I just want to note the progression here because we went from, Oh no, the Supreme court's right wing majority isn't going to overturn Roe. That's never going to happen to, okay, they did overturn Roe, but they won't move to ban it nationally. Uh, to Republicans in Congress, in fact, pushing for a national ban and also anti-abortion activists trying to shrink the space for reproductive health care in liberal states like New Mexico. So um, this is something to be uh, aware of and wary of. Make sure to get someone else out to vote in the next couple of weeks. If you're listening to this show, I'm pretty sure you're not at risk of sitting out this midterm election so go get at least one other person out to the polls who might and with that um let's move on with the show stay tuned we'll be right back after a short break Okay, 
حسود کسکش مجسمتون رو میندازیم از روی قله که میلیون ها نفر مست بشن از بوی سربش دیگه هیچ کدوم نمیترسیم از کل کنده دور گردن هر کدوممون در دون کرگه با هم پا به رن رد میشیم از روی سرته که هیچ کجا غریب نباشه گندم و سفره مراقبت کن از همون به نام and we are back. I'm still Joshua Holland. I'm joined now by Asal Rad. Asal is the research director at the National Iranian American Council, or NIAC. Um, she's also the author of State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. Asal, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate that. Um, we are recording this on Wednesday, October 26th. There is some news today out of uh, Shiraz where gunmen attacked a mosque, uh, tragically killing 15 and wound- wounding many others. Uh, according to reports, Iranian state media has blamed Wahhabist terrorists for the attacks and said the gunmen were not Iranian um, the implication, at least, is that they were Saudis, but I would take that with a huge grain of salt. Um, this was a mosque that was uh, that is known for its its tourism as a tourist attraction, and today is a a a significant day, which we'll get to. Asal, I won't ask you for a hot take on a breaking news story that we don't know much about at this point, but is there anything you want to say about this incident? Well, you know, today is uh, also marks the 40th day since the killing of Masa Jina Amini. Um, and traditionally uh, in Iran, 40 days marks the end of the mourning period. And we can get into more of why that is significant. But uh, in terms of the the attack, um, you know, it's, it's just already a, a difficult day for many Iranians. This is yet another tragedy uh, where innocent people are being harmed. And there are reports that I saw uh, that ISIS has claimed responsibility. And I also take that with a grain of salt because I don't yes. have confirmation on that. Um, as a caveat, I am not a reporter, uh, but that is reports that I have seen. So it's just, you know, another another pressure, another tragedy that Iranians have to face uh, on a day where they're marking the, you know, this traditional day of mourning for Masa Amini. You know, it's interesting when you think about something, a story, um, like the ongoing protests in Iran that have been going on for six weeks now, uh, almost six weeks now, it's easy to forget or it's easy to not think about how stressful it is, just as we are experiencing all these different stressors at the same time um, coming on the on the heels of the pandemic. I mean, we're already all traumatized. Um, and, you know, 40 days ago, this young woman, um, Masa Amini, died under suspe- suspicious circumstances in a Tehran hospital. Um, she was arrested by the so-called uh, guidance control, which is patrol, which is commonly known in the West, at least as the kind of morality police for not wearing a hijab. And the Iranian government claimed that she'd suffered a heart attack. But there were other detainees that said she'd been tortured to death. Um as as Asel just pointed out, the 40th day after a person's death is traditionally commemorated in Islamic tradition, and there are massive protests underway as we speak. Um, they are being greeted with uh, official violence. Um, that's been the pattern for almost six weeks in Iran, according to human rights. Iran Human Rights, um, Iran Human Rights, which is an NGO 
uh, based in Europe. At least two thir- 234 people have been killed in anti-regime protests through Tuesday. Uh, 30 of them were children. Uh, and, and virtually every day, despite internet shutdowns, you see video clips coming out of these stunning acts of bravery and defiance by Iranian citizens, many of them young, led by women and girls in the face of uh, really brutal repression, the type of repression that we, we are not familiar with, even though we have not seen exactly peaceful policing here in the United States. Assault. These protests have not been ignored by the U.S. media, but they haven't gotten as much attention as they probably should, given that they're, I think it's fair to say, they're rocking kind of the foundations of Iranian society and pose a real, a real threat to the government. Can you put this into <clears throat> kind of a larger context of other recent protest movements in Iran that actually were, I think, largely ignored by the Western media, because I have the sense that this is part of a continuum of social unrest that has been going on for some time against not only, you know, religious oppression, but corruption, economic constraints, etc. Absolutely. So, you know, I think the last time we saw very in-depth coverage of protests in Iran was the last sort of largest protest movement, and that was in 2009, uh, the over the contested election um, of the re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad uh, and the green movement that ensued thereafter. Uh, and so that got a fair amount of, of coverage in uh, U.S. outlets and in Western media um, for having this sort of similar uh, vibe of what we're seeing right now. Um, You had at that time um, a lot of middle-class Iranians, a lot of protest in Tehran, um, which also drew attention because of the large scale of those protests and the number of people who participated in processions uh, and in in demonstrations and marches. So what, what we've seen since then, starting in 2017, are basically like consistent years of protest. And, And you pointed out many of the grievances that have led to these protests. Um, You know, a lot of them have been, especially in 2017 and 18, and then again in November of 2019, we saw large-scale protests that were brutally subdued by uh, Iranian security forces. Um, There's at least over 300 deaths in in those protests in November of 2019, and there are estimates that say there's 1,500 deaths, up to 1,500 deaths. So, and that's when you also had this mass shutdown of the internet. It was difficult to communicate at all to sort of even have an idea of what was going on in the country during those days uh, in November of 2019. And many of those protests that we saw were sparked by um, economic pressures. And so you saw less middle class involvement, more uh, lower middle class, working class Iranians. Uh, especially in 2019, you know, there was an announcement that the under the Rouhani administration that gas prices would be substantially increased overnight. Uh, and that hits people very, very hard. And, you know, a small comparison of that is what we're seeing here in the United States as gas prices rise in America, especially working class Americans really struggle. So now imagine a country like Iran, a much poorer country that um, is also under U.S. sanctions, that combination of uh Corruption and mismanagement, which is the target of protests, has been against the state itself, has been against their own rulers because of the the widespread corruption and mismanagement in the country that exacerbates all of these economic issues um, and really creates a dire economic situation for people in the country. Now, these protests, fast forward to 2022 right now, 
And these protests were not sparked by economic issues. They were sparked by the killing of Masa Amini, which is a social issue. So if you look at the iterations of these protests in 2009, it's sparked by a political issue with elections. Uh, in 2019, you have protests that are sparked by uh, economic issues. And in 2022, it's a social issue. But that in and of itself, right, the fact that there are different sparks to these protests shows you the the depth of grievances across Iranian society, because none of those other grievances ever go away. These protests might may have been sparked by a social issue, an issue of women's rights, an issue of you know freedom uh, and the compulsory hijab, but they go far beyond it, as they did in 2019 and as they did in 2009. So to, to understand uh, the, the outpouring that you see now, you have to understand that this is, uh, these are pressures that have built up over time. These are grievances that are deeply held. And what's, what is interesting and what is different about these protests, and every, by the way, every protest is, has its own unique qualities, even though you can draw parallels, but each one is unique. But what is unique about these particular protests is a new generation, right? The, the, when you see Gen Z Iranians, uh, people in their teens to early 20s who are participating, leading these protests in many ways, uh, a lot of protests taking place at university campuses, at schools, at high schools. Um, this is a generation that in 2009 were children, right? They, they didn't participate in, in the political scene. And so where you've had for uh, many decades since the revolution, a, a millennial population that has engaged with the system, that has attempted to reform it, the state's refusal to reform has also brought on this new generation that doesn't want, doesn't even want to entertain the idea of reform anymore. They see it as a failed process. And so that's why you see chants um, that go to the core of the system that call for the toppling of the system. And, and they are chanting, you know, death to the dictator, um, et cetera. I'm really glad that you use the word spark because I think that it, it, it is really important to understand, first of all, this, this, you know, long dynamic of protest movements going on in Iran, mostly ignored in 2017, 2018, 2019, as you said, um, here in the West, largely ignored, not completely. But um, the conditions, there is some sort of underlying societal conditions that lends itself or that has um, created conditions where a precipitating event can just set off these widespread protests. And what is that? Do we have an understanding of, uh, is there, to what degree is there kind of like a fundamental disconnect between a regime that has a very traditionalist, uh, conservative and inward looking uh, ideology and Iran's kind of famously well-educated, entrepreneurial, outward looking populace? I think that gap also speaks to the generational gap, right? So the first thing I want to say is when you when you look at these protests, and I, we contextualize it over sort of Iran's recent history, but if you really want to understand the, the underlying thread, right? How are these protests always connected, even though they're sparked by different events? Um, why, I mean, Iran is also a country that had a revolution in 1979, right? So this isn't um, sort of protest movements, social movements, political movements in the country are not new. But if you go back even further than that, I would argue that this is um, part of a story that has gone on for well over a century, where Iranians, you know, in 1905, you have the Constitutional Revolution, and it's called a revolution because 
it introduces the idea of constitutionalism, um, it establishes a constitution, but it does fail to topple the monarchy at the time. The monarchy is not toppled until the revolution of 1979. But there is this revolutionary history within the country. And it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's that this happens throughout the region. This is a region that has been um, impacted by colonialism, by Western colonialism. And so you have uh, many nationalist movements, anti-colonial movements, all of these happening over the last century throughout the region. And in Iran specifically, you also have the sort of ebb and flow, even though it's not formally colonized, um, it is affected by colonialism. Well, for instance, the uh, the use of Iranian oil by foreign powers in, in the case of uh, Britain in that case. So to understand what Iranians have been struggling for, it, it's all part of this, this larger history that is calling for a government, in the simplest terms, a government that serves its people. That's the most simple way of understanding what they're calling for. And the reason why it's such a sort of broad concept is because that's where all of these grievances fall into, right? If you're a corrupt system that mismanages because there's nepotism within that system, um, then you are not serving the will of these people. If you are a system that uh, has mass wealth inequality, where the elites have a lot of money and you have so many people who suffer under poverty, that is not a system that serves its people. Um, when you have social restrictions, when so many people are clearly defying those social restrictions because they do not want them, um, that is a government that doesn't serve its people. So it doesn't do it on so many levels that underlying all of this is ultimately, and that's why now you see this notion of toppling the government because they do not, this generation especially, and I think now previous generations have come to understand that if it is incapable of reform, if it refuses to reform, then they have no other choice but to topple that system. And in certain ways, I mean, the system is authoritarian. It's built as an authoritarian system. Yes. Um, and that is something important to keep in mind while Iran has elections, while it has this sort of scaffolding of democratic institutions, right? Like it has a constitution, it has a separation of powers, they do have elections, but all of that is overlaid with this larger authoritarian system, um, which is from, works from the supreme leader and down. So much of this power is endowed upon the supreme leader um, that And that's why you're hearing chants that say, not just death to the dictator as a position, but death to Khamenei himself. That is also being used repeatedly, death to Khamenei. So it's not even about a, the specific position of someone, but they're going right to the source. Um, and, you know, I think the the generational gap is extremely important because you have a generation that has been raised on uh, with the internet, with social media, who see the world around them in a way that generations before them didn't, right? Iranians can't travel outside of the country very easily um, because there are so many visa restrictions from other countries. And so this generation is seeing the world through the internet and juxtaposing their reality with the reality outside of their country. Um, and it's so far removed from uh, not only the people who are in power, who are not just traditional, but just much, much older than they are, but also they're removed from the events that shaped the country into what it is today, right? They're removed from the 1979 revolution. They're removed historically from uh, the, the war of the 1980s between Iran and Iraq. And so their vision of the world is, is very, very different than, than previous generations, even though, and while I say that, even though I think that their wants are not necessarily very different than previous generations, but maybe the style of their demands are different. 
So we know that young people have been leading the charge. Is there, can you give us a kind of a lay of the land in terms of um, other divides within Iranian society? Are we looking at uh, urban rural divides? Is there ethnic divides involved in this class, etc.? Well, those divides exist in general, right? Iran is a diverse country. It has a lot of different ethnicities, religious minorities. Um, there's clearly the, the rural and urban differences, age gaps. But what's fascinating about these protests is it cuts across those differences. Wow. So you see, and that's why I said the distinction between, say, protests in 2019, that maybe you didn't see as much activity in Tehran, um, but now you do in the capital city. You see a lot of activity everywhere. So you have the rural and the urban. You have um, the working class and the middle class. You have young, even though it's youth led, you have young and old. Um, so you have men and women, it, it just really cuts across all of those things. Because I think when you look at all of these grievances, and you, you know, you mentioned earlier, the pandemic, the pandemic has affected people in so many ways. And Iran was one of the first hard hit countries early on in the pandemic. Um, Iranians also very much blamed uh, their officials, uh, especially the Supreme Leader, who had outlawed um, vaccines from the United States and, and Britain, um, as, again, massive mismanagement that, that caused the death of so many people. So that also, I think, has had an impact that we have to consider. And what's interesting is if you look at this period of protest, there's a gap, right? There's a gap basically between um, early 2020 and then what you're seeing now. And what is that gap? The COVID pandemic, right? It's a lot easy, harder to go out and protest when you're quarantining, when you're afraid of this, you know, when everybody is supposed to be socially isolating. So it would, it would have been interesting to see how protests would have continued when we saw that sort of pattern if we didn't have the pandemic. But, but that's something to keep in mind as to why there is this gap. Yeah, wow. Um, I just want to give listeners just a touch more background that I shouldn't have glossed over. Um, the government painted Masa Amini as some kind of uh, radical activist. Her family said that that was not true at all. She steered clear of politics entirely. Government said that she had underlying health problems. Her family says that's complete nonsense. She was young, healthy, in good shape. Um, in 2020, Iran's supreme leader, the Ayatollah Khamenei, said, and I quote, improperly veiled women should be made to feel unsafe. And that was a big um, controversy, I will say. Uh, it was a statement which was echoed by a bunch of hardliners, and it resulted, according to uh, observers, in a dramatic increase in uh, street harassment, and in some cases, violence against unveiled women. And I think listeners should know that um, this represents a minority view among the Iranian public. There was a 2020 survey conducted by Gammon, which is an independent research group, that found that only 15% of respondents favored compulsory hijabs. 72% said they should not be mandatory. Um, many didn't believe in wearing them at all. Um, I've seen now in response to these protests, a number of uh, Iranian experts in and out of Iran saying that at this point, the movement has grown to such a degree and is so widespread and it's, it's moved so quickly that the government is going to be incapable of just putting it down with repression, absent significant political reforms. Is that your view? Because I look at Syria and Egypt and the kind of crushed hopes of uh, 
some of the countries that that looked so promising in the Arab Spring, and I'm not so sure. Well, I, if I'm being honest with you, I'm a little torn in how to in how to respond to that because there is the there is the sober analyst in me, and then there is the the you know someone who is of Iranian heritage who is hopeful that right. uh, that in fact one of the things I will say is that I think we are watching change occur in real time. Um, and to I don't think we can go back to a status quo. Now, I don't like to make predictions because this is not a predictable situation. Um, yeah, so many on the spot. No, no, not at all. I mean, there's just so many variables, right? We don't know. We, we don't know how the state's going to respond. We don't know how people are going to respond. We don't know how outside actors are going to respond. And there's so many variables to consider. Um, and, and all the examples that you gave, when you look at the Arab Spring, when you look at Syria, when you look at Egypt, because of those multivariable uh, issues, you know, things turned out differently in different in different cases. Um, but I don't I do think that we should be careful not to define uh, something that is like a victory, especially in the short term. Like if they don't topple the government tomorrow, then this is a failure. You know, like there is there's this because there is this intense hope, I think, especially coming from um, the diaspora community and from people in the country itself. Um, there is that kind of reading of the situation. Revolutions take time. Um, they, even when you, if you look at the case of Iran in 1979, as an example, you know, a lot of people point out to the fact that the initial stage of sort of that revolution started in, uh, January of 1978, it took a full year, but the real history behind it is, is longer than that. It didn't take, it wasn't one year, you know, so, so it's, it's hard to say where it's going to go, but when you see images of women, um, going out without their hijab. And that does not mean that they are not being stopped. It does not mean they're not being harassed and arrested. These things are happening. But nonetheless, they're still doing it. And when you see that happen, that was unimaginable two months ago. If someone said two right. months ago, yeah, you know, this group of women are going to go sit in the cafe and they're going to not wear their hijab. That was unimaginable. And here we're watching it happen. And these acts of defiance are themselves game changers. They change things on the ground. Um, it is through their own resistance. It is the resistance of these people towards um, the authorities that rule over them that is causing those changes to occur in real time. Um, but, you know, what I call it, can we predict when and where something will happen? I think that Iranians will resist, whether it's one year from now or 10 years from now or 100 years from now. Iranians will continue to resist until their hopes of freedom and democracy are fulfilled. And that has been the ongoing story for, like I said, for a very long time. Um, and it's taken on different shapes. It's taken on different styles of resistance. And, and right now what we're seeing is a very defiant young population who has shattered this sort of notion of fear. And that's one of the things that this, you know, that's one of the things that states always have. States have typically a monopoly on violence. Um, and so that's how they instill fear. Now, all that being said, this state has shown that it has no problem carrying out violence against its own people. It has no problem crushing and subduing uh, protests by any means necessary, whether it be shutting down the internet, deadly force, uh, the use of mass arrests. I mean, we, something over 12,000 people have already been arrested. So it is, I find the scenario in which the, this state, the Islamic Republic, and the officials that make up the Islamic Republic will sort of go away quietly in the night 
I don't see that as a likely scenario, but how how Iranians get to where they want to be, to a state that represents their actual needs, that's something that we'll have to just wait and see how it unfolds. But I do think the fact that these conversations are, by the way, they're also being had in the country, right? Um, yes. You have formal officials, you have people from the clerical body, you have uh, people... You just pointed out the the statistic, the polling that shows you know vast majority of the vast vast majority of Iranian society does not agree with compulsory hijab. That includes people who wear it. That includes right. women who who choose to wear it, saying that but it shouldn't be forced upon people to wear. And I think the fact that these conversations are being had in this manner as well is in and of itself another victory already of of what we've seen in this movement thus far. And it's 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 in its very early stages. Um, its ability to sustain itself as a movement will uh, be predicated on, you know, the ability to sustain this sort of unity that cuts across these different sectors of Iranian society. If you can bring labor movements and unify them with these student-led protests, all of those things remain to be seen. You gave me a great segue here, because when you said that the there are a lot of women who choose to wear a hijab who are, do not favor mandatory hijabs. So... The plight of Muslim women, both real and imagined, let me say that, has been used to justify a lot of Western imperialism. We've often been told that, you know, we need to remain in first in Iraq and then in Afghanistan to protect Muslim women from like their fathers and husbands. And and that discourse actually goes back to old Orientalist tropes, like it used to justify European colonialism for a very, very long time. And yet, many Islamic women choose to wear a hijab when it is not um, mandatory, just like other people of other faiths wear various traditional garments. I mean, it, it becomes an issue because of, I think it's all wrapped up in Islamophobia because, you know, Orthodox Jews and Christians cover their heads as well, and it doesn't seem to be a hot button. And yet in places like France and elsewhere, it has become just that, like a social war issue pushed by, largely by right-wingers, by Islamophobes. They've rallied around um, banning it in, in French schools, for example. And it seems that Muslim women's travails are invoked in different ways by very different actors. How do you square all of that? It's, it seems like uh, Muslim women and their head coverings are just this kind of like hot potato. And I, I'm not sure that the views of of Muslim women themselves are, are really centered in those discussions? Well, uh, women's views are rarely centered in discussions about <laughs> yes, women's rights or their bodies, <laughs> right? And, and that's, that's, that's yes. sort of the ongoing problem is, and, and you know, the veil is, can be understood in very many different ways. Um, it's not just a religious garb, it, and that's why it has, it's worn differently in different cultural context it is a cultural uh thing for some people who identify with with it as as something that they want to wear um but at the same time it can it's a symbol right and it's become and you pointed out precisely why it's a symbol right because it's been used by um actors like colonial actors who clearly did not have the well wishes of the indigenous populations that they were occupying when they use this discourse, right? The discourse of we're freeing you from your oppression. And, and, and that's in the same breath, we're oppressing you and taking your resources. So this the veil 
and it like any other symbol symbols are given meaning by people and so the context is what gives it meaning and i think it's important to understand in the case of these protests these women are not protesting there's actually a lot of images and they're they're very powerful images of um iranian women dressed differently right now right someone without a headscarf someone with a loose headscarf and someone in a full chador right an entire like large more traditional garb standing next to each other holding hands or standing next to each other in solidarity right and those images of solidarity are so important because it also shows you that this is not a protest against the veil this is a protest against the mandatory veil it is a protest for freedom and because ultimately um, these debates and the way that they're had, especially the, the way that it's framed in, in Western discourse is in that language of like freedom and women's rights. But ultimately, freedom is a choice. Yes. Freedom is the choice to wear or not to wear something. Yes. Um, and there's this great uh, political cartoon or like a, a gif that I saw years ago where you have a woman standing in the middle and two men standing around her and one keeps putting pulling the veil off and the other one keeps putting the veil back on. And that to me was just in a nutshell what the problem is with the discourse is that yeah. very rarely are these women themselves a given the autonomy to make those choices because both sides think that they know they have the answer they know what it is but ultimately the answer is freedom and that's what they're calling for right one of the the central slogan of these protests has been uh women life freedom and one of the chants that you just today that we saw repeatedly by uh iranian students by university students is Azadi, 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 freedom, freedom, freedom. That is the central theme that we are looking at. And so freedom is freedom of choice. Yeah. And I, I should say that, you know, there are, we, we shouldn't even view Islam as a monolith. It's massive, you know, massive share of the population, our adherence to Islam. It is interpreted differently in different countries. Um, it is a traditional and in many places a conservative religion, whether we're talking about Christianity or Hinduism or Judaism, traditional conservative religions tend to um, put a lot of constraints on women. On the other hand, on the flip side of that, I have known some extremely, you know, feminist uh, Western Muslim women who like to wear a hijab as a fashion statement. It's, they think it looks cute. So that exists as well. And then I hate this tendency for American analysts to make everything about us. But I, before I let you go, I just have to ask a little bit about that. Um, to what degree have the U.S. sanctions that were reimposed after Trump pulled out of the nuclear agreement aggravated these tensions in Iran? Because we were talking about the economic conditions that drove uh, a lot of the protests in 2018 and 2019 before the pandemic hit. Um, how has Iran's tumultuous relations with the U.S. and the rest of the West played into this outbreak of dissent, if at all? Well, I think when you talk about when you want to talk about the grievances that Iranians have and when we say the grievances go you know, far beyond the what sparked these protests, one of those grievances is certainly economic. Um, and that's not. I mean, it's not odd. That's pretty typical of any society. Um, yes. Every country, I mean, right now, there's a lot of challenges that the world faces, that the United States faces as a, as a country. And yet, if you ask an average American uh, going into an election, into midterm elections, what they care about, it's the economy, right? It's well, how much they're paying at the, the gas station. 
Um, so it is fairly common that you're, because it's their livelihood, right? Your livelihood is central to, to everything. And in Iran, it is, it is very easy for Iranians to understand that there can be more than one factor that contributes to those economic woes, um, both the mismanagement and corruption uh, of their own government uh, and exacerbated by U.S. sanctions. And they understand this. But that doesn't mean that all of their problems are to be blamed on the U.S. That's clearly not the case. Uh, if you look at, and there is this tendency, there has been. But there this is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the regime does tend to uh, place blame primarily. On, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But that's not the Iranian people, right? And that's right, what I'm right. saying is like Iranian people can make that distinction. That is the narrative that the Islamic Republic tries to use to avert blame, as it does for everything, right? Even these protests. The, the protests are agitators. It's fomented from the outside. They have the authority to playbook, right? Right. I mean, it's 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 because they can never be blamed for anything that happens. But of course, right. they are to blame. Um, and these are organic protests. And that's what I was going to say. Is there's been this unfortunate tendency on the left in the U.S. to sort of uh, echo the talking points of the Islamic Republic, which make no sense. I mean, this is not this should be a very easy thing to understand why people are outraged by the killing of this young woman. It should be very intuitive to understand why people are outraged that yeah. their bodies are being controlled in this fashion to begin with. Um, and so, and I think when you talk about these protests, economic grievances are certainly one, but there's why, I mean, it goes across the board in terms of grievances. And if you want to understand economic grievances, you also have to understand the role of, uh, U.S. sanctions. Yeah. All of those things I think are, you know, Iran does not exist in a vacuum. No. Yes. Their leaders are making decisions, but so are outside powers. The outside powers are making decisions as well that impact them. Um, and in certain ways, the U.S. sort of uh, U.S. policies allow or give space or give an excuse. That's the best way I can say it. They give an excuse to the Islamic Republic to to try to avert blame. But Iranians don't buy this. Right. They they can take issue with two things at the same time. And of course, the focus of their ire is on their own government is on their own state. Because yeah. it's not just about economic issues. And so if you were to remove sanctions, that wouldn't remove the so-called morality police. It wouldn't remove um, discriminatory laws against women. That wouldn't remove the mandatory hijab. That wouldn't remove an authoritarian system that put the supreme leader at the top. Those are things that are all grievances. And those are all fully the responsibility of the rulers of that country. Um, but specifically in terms of economic grievances, yes, you could. U.S. policy has um, has worsened the economic situation in Iran. I mean, the, again, the phrase was called maximum pressure. That's yes. that is official U.S. policy. That is officially yeah. what it is called. Make it as painful so, as possible. Absolutely, and that's the rhetoric that was used. That was the yeah. discourse that was used. That we are going to bring, you know, this will be the strongest. Um, sanctions system in history. That is how former Secretary of State Pompeo talked about the sanctions on Iran. So it was meant to bring pressure um, on that country. And while, you know, official stated uh, policy is not that it was meant to bring pressure on people, everybody knows that it did. We're fully aware of these facts. You know, mm -hmm. the very human rights language that we are employing today to condemn, to rightfully condemn the Islamic Republic that same human rights language was used 
to urge the United States to ease sanctions, not just on Iran, but on various countries during the COVID pandemic, because it was a human rights issue. It was a health issue. Um, and of course, we didn't. We Not only did we not ease sanctions, we actually increased sanctions during that time. So is that a factor? Yes. Is that the central factor? No. Um, but in order to understand the sort of full picture of where we are at, that is something that we should understand as well. The U.S. imposed new sanctions on members of Iran's intelligence agencies, the leaders of the Revolutionary Guard, uh, and some prison officials just today in response to Amini's death. And it seems my sense of U.S.-Iranian relationships is that it's very much driven by both by hardliners on both sides, and they play off of each other and make it very hard for um, good people to create detente. We seem to be on the brink of negotiating the U.S.'s re-entry into the Iran nuclear deal. Um, before this, I don't know how that will be impacted, um, and that was also before Iran sold uh, allegedly. I think it's pretty well established sold drones and perhaps missiles to the U to the Russians for use in Ukraine. So there's, for me, there's um, a kind of sad missed opportunity here, perhaps. Asal Rad, um, there's a history of that. I just, just there, uh, yes, sorry, to, uh, but there's no, a history please, of that, of these missed opportunities. You know, like we, it is, one of the things to keep in mind, by the way, when we talk about sanctions is that right now, as Iranians are protesting, um, there are these calls. These are from people who support the protesters, right, outside of the country who are calling for general strikes. But the thing about striking, um, the thing about labor strikes is people have to have the means to still live and yes. not work and not get paid. And so one of the ways that sanctions affect or have it when you affect the economy in this way, I mean, you have over the last five years or so, um, millions of middle-class Iranians who have been forced into poverty. And this happens as you have hyperinflation, people can't afford things. It affects everybody across the board, except for the very elite, right? They stay insulated, whereas the vast majority of the population is impacted. If by nothing else, if by nothing else, just inflation alone. And so now when you, when you realize that our sanctions have also are undermining their ability to sustain uh, these protests. And that's part of the reason why you see young people leading the way, because they don't, you know, if you're a student, you're not working. And so you you have the ability to to participate in protests because you're not missing hours at work. You know, so there's there's that maybe secondary issue with sanctions that people don't necessarily consider. But right now, as you see calls to create, um, you know, to collect funds in order to help protesters, we also have to keep in mind, well, there's a reason why we haven't been able to do these things in the past, because sanctions make it difficult to send money to people in Iran or do any of these things. So, so there is that layer of it, I think that sometimes people are missing, is that it's not when it hurts, like these sanctions that you just talked about, targeted sanctions are very different than broad based sanctions. Targeted sanctions on human rights abusers, on individual human rights abusers, are not the same thing as sanctioning an entire financial system that affects the entire population. And so I think we have to think about how our sanctions um, are, are used for accountability for bad actors and not collective punishment to an entire civilian population. Sanctions seem to have become kind of like a go-to response by the U.S., especially 
um, in the wake of the military failures in Iraq and Afghanistan. So the idea is like, oh, well, we're not going to send troops. We're just going to sanction the shit out of everybody. And I, I, I support some of those sanctions for sure. Um, Certainly targeted sanctions. I also kind of support broader based sanctions on Russia, just because there has been so little domestic dissent um, in response to this just war of aggression. Um, but it is something that we really have to be wary of because it's something that is, it's, it's, it's easy to go into the toolbox of sanctions. It doesn't end up in body bags coming home. It doesn't, you know, necessarily hurt you with the voters, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we have to be sensitive to these things. Asal Rad, I believe we are about out of time. I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'd also like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Raw Story and Alternate for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at for the moment. I don't know if maybe I'm going to leave Twitter now that Elon Musk is uh, taking it over. Um, anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, H-O-L. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank all of you fine people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Well, it's time to stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. It's bad line being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speaking their mind. Is